Finally, an easy parable. It's about time, don't you think? Jesus has told some whoppers lately, stories that either elude easy interpretation or ask so much of us that it can be hard to listen. He's been talking about economic systems that need to be overhauled, and dishonest managers who mess with the boss's books, and people lounging comfortably on their couches while others are hungry outside. To encourage us in our prayer lives, he told a story last week about a widow verbally and perhaps also physically assaulting a judge until he gave her what she wanted. It's a strange sort of encouragement, to say the least. It has been a hard go these past weeks, wrestling with Jesus' stories like Jacob wrestling with that shadowy figure by the riverbank. So what a relief today to have a story that requires no wrestling or wrangling at all. I mean, it's all pretty clear, isn't it? On one side of the temple, we've got the religious leader with his smug, self-righteous prayer, all pride and pomposity. And on the other, we've got the tax collector with his simple request, a picture of humility and contrition. The story puts these two figures before us so that we will be like the good one and not like the bad one. And we are, right? I mean, we all just said our prayer of confession together a few minutes ago, acknowledging our sin and asking for God's mercy. I don't see anybody in the sanctuary today standing at the front and loudly trumpeting their spiritual superiority over the rest of us. Maybe we've seen people like that before, sometime, somewhere, but that's not us. So, finally, a parable that is easy to swallow, a parable that leaves us alone. Thank goodness we are not like that Pharisee. You all see where this is going, right? Sort of by definition, a parable should not leave us alone. If we have got it all figured out, or if it seems to do nothing but bless the place where we happen to be standing at the moment, then we probably need to dig a little deeper. Our parable today is a deceptively simple one. It sounds easy, but it's not. I sort of think of it like a mouse trap, with a tempting little piece of cheese in the middle. It is so tempting to villainize that Pharisee, to thank God that we are not like him. And then as soon as we do that, we've sprung the trap because it's caught us doing exactly what he did. So it's back to the wrestling match after all. That's where parables always send us, really. This one is no different. And a good place to begin wrestling might be with our prejudices. Who are we predisposed to like in this story? And who are we predisposed to not like? It's not a difficult question, really. We hear Pharisee and we think legalistic bad guy. Jesus always seems to be arguing with someone from this group, after all. And we hear tax collector and we sort of think poor and persecuted friend of Jesus. Tax collectors follow him as disciples. He's often dining with them, along with others who are looked down upon by others in their society. Their titles alone lead us to like one character in this story and dislike the other, and that they seem to speak and act in ways that fit our stereotypes just makes it all the easier and more comfortable. But it's important to realize that those stereotypes we have absorbed are not at all the ones Jesus' audience would have held. 
And if we let our biases govern the way we hear this parable, we might end up missing the point entirely. Amy Jill Levine, a biblical scholar who has written extensively on Jesus's parables, argues that the audience listening to Jesus first tell this story would have been predisposed very differently. They would have been predisposed to like and respect the Pharisee and to be deeply suspicious of the tax collector. For Jews in first century Galilee, Pharisees were hardly seen as the villains that we sometimes make them out to be. They were religious teachers who meant to help people preserve their traditions and their way of life in a time of change and domination by an outside empire. Pharisees were not sort of ivory tower academics who were far apart from the people. They were present in local communities, right where the people were. They were generally living simply and tried to make the teachings of the Jewish faith available and accessible to everyone. Yes, Jesus disagreed with some of their interpretations of the law and some of their visions for community life, but there was undoubtedly lots of overlap in their views as well, rooted in a common desire to live faithfully as God's people in their time. Levine says the majority of Jesus's audience would have seen the Pharisees as respected teachers who both talked the talk and walked the walk of their faith. Tax collectors, though, were a different story. These were local people, people who had grown up in the Jewish towns and villages of Galilee, who were now working for the Romans. They made their living not by contributing to their communities that raised and nurtured them like everyone else, but by taking money from those very communities to fund the empire's occupation of their land. They showed up at the door of the granny who had taken care of them as a little kid and demanded money to fund the supplies for the garrison down the road. To make matters worse, they were expected by the Romans to collect something extra for their own profit. Tax collectors were widely seen as dishonest traders, exploiting their neighbors in order to line their own pockets. And there was likely plenty of truth to that image much of the time. So when Jesus told a story about a Pharisee and a tax collector praying in the temple, his first century Jewish audience would have been primed to side with the Pharisee, and it is not hard to understand why. I mean, who would you side with? The one working for justice and righteousness in your community or against it? So we got these two characters, and actually, instead of lining up either with first century expectations or with ours, their depiction turns out to be a bit more complicated. Neither one of them turns out to be purely a saint or purely a sinner. The Pharisee's clearly been busy with living out his faith. He's been giving a tenth of his income to support others, and he's been fasting regularly, both practices commended in Jewish law. It actually looks like he's going above and beyond the call of duty here. All of that's good. On the other hand, he is, of course, a bit smug, holding himself above that person who's praying next to him. Yes, that person is a tax collector, likely dishonest and greedy and traitorous, Still, the Pharisee could pray for his neighbor's well-being rather than thank God that he himself is doing far more for the community than that guy, even if he very likely is. So the Pharisee here is not all good and certainly not all bad. And the same appears to be true for the tax collector. His prayer is short and sweet. Have mercy on me, a sinner. You can't argue with that prayer, right? Acknowledging our sin and asking for God's mercy is always in season. That sort of humility and devotion is always appropriate. It's always right. But shouldn't the prayer 
maybe go just a little bit further than that? I mean, wouldn't it be better for the tax collector to say, have mercy on me, a sinner? And I recognize that that work I've been doing is kind of dishonest and nasty, so I'm going to make a change. Tomorrow, I'm going to go hand in my resignation. Amen. It's right to ask for mercy, but if you are doing something unjust, the request needs to be followed with action, with commitment, with a will to change. And the tax collector says nothing like that. We have no idea from Jesus' story if he quit his job the next day or if he stopped exploiting his neighbors. He may have gone right back to his work as though nothing changed. The story doesn't tell us. So we've got these two characters, both of them ambiguous, both of them a mix of good and bad. One's living in honorable ways and praying a bit too haughtily, and one is living in unjust ways and praying humbly. So where does Jesus actually mean for our sympathies to go? Here's where things get really, really interesting. Because the punchline of the story where Jesus says, I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went down to his home justified rather than the other, that can be translated in a number of different ways. The version we heard this morning is a correct translation, of course. It suggests that the tax collector went home justified or in right relationship with God rather than the Pharisee. That's that familiar interpretation of the parable, the one that fits our predispositions and prejudices. But the line can also just as well be translated this way. I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went down to his home justified alongside the other. That translation, which is also correct, gives a very different reading. And it's one that I find very compelling because it suggests that both of these imperfect characters, the one who's basically living well and burdened by pride, and the one who's making a mess of his life and is nonetheless humble before God, will both have a place in God's house. The reading challenges us, just like it would have challenged Jesus's first century audience, not to just side with one character or the other, not to divide the world into deserving saints and undeserving sinners, The characters are both ambiguous and imperfect, after all. They are both in need of God's mercy and the ongoing transformation that comes from life in the community and in God's embrace. It challenges us not to just side with one or the other, but to stand simply before God in recognition of the need we have, like everyone else, for grace in this day, for changed hearts and changed lives. Martin Luther once put it this way, This life is not righteousness, but growth in righteousness. Not health, but healing. Not being, but becoming. Not rest, but exercise. We are not yet what we shall be, but we are growing toward it. The process is not yet finished, but it is going on. This is not the end, but it is the road. All does not yet gleam in glory, but all is being purified. These two characters, like all of us, are works in progress. They're not yet what they shall be, but by the grace of God, they are on the road. And if both of them leave the temple justified that day, held in love, made right with God, then it means I can put no limits on the workings of God's grace. If there is a place for both of them in God's house, then there's a place for me too, and for you, 
and for everyone else in that mercy that knows no boundaries. Thanks be to God. Amen.